Friends, before we begin, let me invite you to keep up with all the Tracks for the Journey resources by subscribing to the Tracks Express newsletter. Once a week, I send a wide range of helps for well-being directly to your inbox. The Express has inspiration and insights for spirituality, relationships, ecology, emotional health, and yes, recipes for good food. The easiest way to subscribe is on my website, www.tracksforthejourney.com. Thanks for listening today. Hello everyone, welcome to Tracks for the Journey, a podcast dedicated to your well-being. I'm Larry Payne, your host, and I've looked forward to this day for a long time. It's the beginning of season number four on Tracks for the Journey. We've covered some great topics in the past three seasons, and I believe some excellent ones are ahead for us. I'll try to capture helps for your growth from progressive Christian theology, psychology, science, and history. During this season, the Tracks for the Journey will have a different format than what we've done in the past. In previous seasons, I focused on one subject and tried to cover it very extensively. During this season, though, we're going to use a different format, an audio magazine format. I'll be offering several different topics in brief segments during each episode. So I hope you'll enjoy this new approach to Tracks for the Journey. In our episode today, let's travel down the trail to break bad habits, celebrate freedom, embrace God's mercy, and even more. In our first segment, called Psychopaths, I want to have a confession, because there is a habit that I should break. It is a practice that doesn't build up my well-being or help anyone else. I'm confessing today my habit of judging the performance of public speakers. And this critique is often negative. Quick to point out the failures of the person on the Zoom call, the TV pitch man, or in the corporate conference room. Maybe you have some bad habits, too. As a licensed counselor, I work with people who often need to shed bad behaviors. So today, let's work on how we can change these negative actions to have a better life. Bad habits are, by definition, a negative factor for our well-being. This may bring a bad diet, hurt relationships, cause problems at work, and even cause us to break the law. A wise step would be to change those habits, right? But all of us admit that's hard. We delay, rationalize, or give a half-hearted two-day effort that never works. For my issue, I would note that I've spent 50 years in Christian ministry and hours of study about public speaking. I know a lot about what's good and what's not so good. But my habit isn't helping me grow as a better person or helping a speaker improve the skills of communication. 
Today, I want to use a book that I think you'll find very helpful. Helpful books I've ever read is by an author named James Clear. He's a motivational speaker and researcher about topics like this. And he has authored a remarkable book entitled Atomic Habits. In this book, he offers some guidance about breaking bad habits and building the good ones. His book is based on modern psychological research and filled with understandable stories that carry us along. He begins with a focus on becoming aware that the habit you are interested in is not in line with who we are or want to become. Your identity should be supported by the habits that you have. Clear says it this way, quote, Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to be. End quote. Wow, that's a powerful thing to say. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to be. For an example that I might make up, if you want to feel satisfied with your physical appearance next summer on the beach, drinking sugar-filled soft drinks will not create that look of satisfaction. If I want to be a good mentor, then silently criticizing the facilitator doesn't help my goal. So we must be brutally honest to say, this habit does not build the identity and character I want to be. I believe we're halfway down the path when we define who we want to be and the habits that stand in our way. Those are the bad habits that we should try and eliminate. To do that, we should take some simple actions. Clear writes this way. The best way to break a bad habit is to make it impractical to do. I'd like for you to grab onto that statement and hold on to it. The best way to break a bad habit is to make it impractical to do. It is the key to changing the parts of our life that are not helping you. But how can we do this? Clear presents four actions we can take to create barriers for the bad habit and to begin to break by making it impractical to do. Let me give you very quickly the four things that Clear says will help make this bad habit impractical. First, we must make the habit invisible. He means by this that we must reduce the exposure and the cues from our environment. So if we want to not drink sugary soft drinks, let's not buy them. If we're concerned about binge-watching a show that wastes our time, then we should activate a parental control to limit that show. If we're concerned about getting better sleep habits, then we should ban the phone for 30 minutes before bedtime if we want better sleep. All of these are a part of the environment that we first must change by making the habit disappear. The first vital step is to change our environment so the bad habit is pushed away from our attention. Second, Clear says that we should make the bad habit unattractive. This is the step of honest assessment and facing the reality that my personal well-being is being hindered by the habit. For instance, we might make a big sign for the refrigerator with the actual calorie count or sugar count of that drink. Maybe we should 
chart the time wasted on meaningless entertainment and binge-watching. For me, I need to own the fact of pride and vanity that assumes I know the best techniques as those things which are opposite of my Christian qualities of life. Face your ugly stuff, and change is easier. That's how we make it unattractive. The third part is to make it difficult. Now, Clear describes this as increasing the friction to accomplish the bad action. Of course, it's friction that brings our car to a stop in a sudden skid, as the rubber has friction on the highway. Think of the same idea about the habit you want to change. In this phase, we actually take action. For instance, put the TV remote in a high cabinet so it takes extra effort to start binging that show. Or, if you're concerned about so many video games, put two-factor authentication on your phone to break the habit. If I'm concerned about my critical mindset for that speaker in front of me, then perhaps I should take notes to focus on the content so my attention is diverted from the perceived mistakes. This is making the habit more difficult. By setting up barriers of action, we should be creative to try and do this because it helps put the brakes on the bad habit. The fourth thing is to make it unsatisfying. This means changing the reward system in our brain. We can reward our consumption of healthy drinks rather than the reward of a sugar high to hold me accountable. We can total the dollar saved from cable or streaming costs and reward ourselves with a new pair of shoes. We can reward doing good exercise seven days in a row by having a small dinner with friends. For my issue, my reward system could be activated by appreciating the content offered and then interacting with the speaker to give encouragement. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that you must change everything at once in order to break a bad habit. In fact, that's a sure way to fail. Clear has a great idea when he writes about the power of the 1% change. If we will seek to continually improve by a little each day or each week, then we'll create more lasting change than just hoping for a huge breakthrough, which is very rarely achieved. The 1% change done continually compounds the power of breaking that habit. I love the story that Clears tells in his book about Victor Hugo, the world-renowned French author of the 1800s. Hugo had a deadline to produce a major novel for a publisher, and the deadline was just six months away. He had really procrastinated for a year and now felt overwhelmed. Then he did something unusual. He had his assistant collect all his clothes except for a large shawl, leaving him nothing appropriate to wear out in public. In doing this, he had in effect confined himself to the house for the next few weeks to concentrate only on the book. This broke the habit of distraction and procrastination and doing so many other social things that had blocked his creativity for weeks. 
He sat down and began to write furiously and passionately about a disabled man living in a cathedral who falls in love. Two weeks before the deadline, his classic work, known as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, was published. James Clear sums up this process of breaking our habits and creating good new ones with this statement, you become your habits. And so we can create greater well-being by changing the unproductive and offensive habits that may be holding us back. We do this in four simple steps. In make them invisible, unattractive, difficult, and unsatisfying. You may not publish a classic novel, but you will be happier in life. James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results, is published by Avery Penguin Press. The signpost segment in this episode is entitled Crazy Mercy. Our culture holds little respect for a person who doesn't earn their way. Welfare queens and men born with a silver spoon of riches are often scorned. We value the ethos of a self-made man and the motto, try, try again. So, we may be bothered when the scripture says in Romans chapter 9 that finding God's favor, quote, does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy, end quote. That doesn't seem fair, does it? It seems like God should be persuaded to bless me if I do things right. If I pray correctly or give more money or maybe help random strangers or even die in a just cause. Now there's a contract I can understand. If I do X, then God does Y to bless me. Mercy? Hmm. That quality throws a loop of reciprocity way out of whack. Because when we talk about mercy, a relationship comes into focus. A judge may choose to reduce a fine as an act of mercy. Or a cattleman keep a deformed calf for a pet. Mercy is messy and unpredictable. And what if God extended mercy to just anyone, especially people that aren't following the contract? That doesn't fit into the system. The words from the ancient Hebrew Bible in Exodus 33 read like this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. They're also quoted in Romans chapter 9. And this is a fundamental principle of theology, honoring the very nature of God and God's work. How amazing is the miracle of God that has chosen to be merciful to the entire human race through the work of Jesus, extending the grace of salvation to every person. The divine has broken the demand of the religious system that seeks to earn the blessing. The divine has broken the reciprocity of X earning Y. Another scripture drives home the theme. From Ephesians we read, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. When we allow our souls to be captured by this truth, it changes everything. No longer are we caught in a hamster wheel of proving ourselves with good deeds. We open ourselves to the affirmation of worth to the divine who knows us completely and welcomes us with mercy. If we experience this truth fully, we'll change even the way we treat other people. We may grow to live out the wisdom of the Apostle James who proclaims that, quote, mercy triumphs over judgment, end quote. Who needs your mercy today? Is it someone you've treated wrongly or someone you've just ignored? Perhaps it is your own self, miserable and burdened with the rigid burdens of your own condemnation. Let's embrace the truth of mercy found in the heart of God and extend it to us. As the psalmist sang, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. Crazy mercy. It's what we need for sure. Our final segment today is in the backtracks, in which we look back at history and connect it to the present day, especially when those things are a product of Christian faith. Today, let's talk about our freedom for faith. And I have a question for you. If you pay taxes, what percentage of your taxes go to support your local church? If you replied zero, you owe the right answer to a man who was thrown out of his town during a bitter New England winter 386 years ago. So in this backtrack segment... Let's connect history and faith by looking at the story of Roger Williams. Now, you may have never heard his name wherever you live in America, but in one of our smallest states, he's very well known. Williams was a brilliant, charismatic, Puritan clergyman. He grew up doing the bloody religious wars that racked England for over a hundred years, pitting Christian sects against one another. And as a Puritan, he believed the old Church of England was so corrupt that it should be abandoned. This led him to sail across the Atlantic to join the Plymouth Colony of Massachusetts in 1631, joining our founding fathers and mothers who wanted to establish a pure and holy church. Williams also came to believe, just as controversial, that the government and church should be separate. That's where we'll focus today. The leaders of Plymouth Colony embraced Williams at first. They believed enforcing the religion by the power of the state, and that was like every government had done throughout history. But as Williams preached in Massachusetts, he said this was wrong, that the church was being corrupted by the power and greed of government, and therefore the two should be separated. As a result of the dispute, well, he lost, and he was exiled from Massachusetts on September 13, 1635. 
That's 386 years ago. He would have died during that bitter winter, except for the kindness and help of the Indians of the area. In this deep crisis, the greatest of his life, he glimpsed a new understanding of government and faith. And the next spring, he was given a small plot of land from those Indians, and he named the little settlement Providence, celebrating God's provision of life and hope. Then he did something extraordinary. As other seekers and religious exiles came to his village, he wrote a charter that put together the form of government but did not mention God. It was the first colonial charter in European history to try and bring people of different religious views together for a common civil work as voting equals. There would be no financial or judicial support of religion by the colony. And slowly, like-minded citizens, many fleeing persecution for their faith, gathered and built the colony of Rhode Island. In 1638, Williams founded the First Baptist Church of Providence, which became the oldest Baptist church in America. Now later he would leave the church to become what he called a seeker, longing for greater religious discernment and a closer walk with God. Our story about Roger Williams doesn't stop there. A few years later he traveled back to England, and he began to work with the English Parliament to convince them to grant a charter for Rhode Island that enshrined the principle he now called soul liberty. The same year he published a 400-page tract with the vivid name The Bloody Tenant of Persecution for the Sake of Conscience. In this dramatic document, he called for the freedom of conscience to be recognized and upheld by the state. He further argued that the power of government lies only with the people and not from divine decree. In this work, Williams lays the philosophical foundation for religious liberty that would influence the greatest philosophers of his era and ultimately be enshrined in a document we call the Constitution of the United States. More than 360 years after Roger Williams preached in Providence, I stood in the pulpit of First Baptist Church to honor such a visionary. It was really a privilege to think that his work so many centuries before had laid the foundation for the freedom of conscience that all Americans enjoy today. We live now in a nation where each person is free to believe and worship according to their conscience. An establishment of religion by the state is not permitted, but instead each area are separate, benefiting each other in the best possible world. Sadly, many nations across the world have yet to follow this wisdom, and the people suffer as a result. So today, let's thank Roger Williams for living through exile and starvation to capture a new order of human civilization and to plan it not only in the state of Rhode Island, but in the states of the United States of America. Thank you 
for taking a few minutes to listen to this episode of Tracks for the Journey. I hope you've enjoyed the new format covering multiple subjects on a given broadcast. And if you like what you've heard, share a rating with your podcast provider and also send a link to your friends. I invite you also to go to tracksforthejourney.com. That's run one word, tracksforthejourney.com to find more resources for your faith journey. You can also join the community on Facebook or email me care of tracks at outlook.com. Tracks for the Journey is produced at the Bright Star Studio and hosted by buzzsprout.com. All rights reserved. Music is provided through Epidemic Music and the artists are named in the show notes. Thank you for joining me. And let's get together again in a couple of weeks as we explore what's best for your well-being in Tracks for the Journey.